bitch, please. Oh, bitch, please, my ass. You want a sandwich? Dig that. Oh, hell yeah. She's a bad if I wasn't a Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your ass. Hello and welcome to the newest episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. And with all the ads and all the promotions... You can tell it's that season, that time of year again. And you'll find out what season I'm talking about here next, here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single-touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year, and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please, Drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Earlier in my uh, opening, I stated that it's that season again. No, it's not baseball playoff season. No, it's not NBA, the start of the NBA or the NFL or the NHL. It's the political season, and I know we all dread it. But today I have my political analyst, Jeff Hayden. How you doing, Jeff? I'm doing well, JB. How are you, man? I'm good. And just to let people in why Jeff is my political analyst, Jeff, you ran for office a couple of, uh, more than a couple of times, but I think you served uh, several times. But we'll get deeper into that in a few minutes. I would uh, like to give some background on you, if possible, your former state senator and you're an analyst on the local PBS show here in Minnesota, Almanac. And, um, but I want to go a little bit deeper than that. Where were you raised? You know, uh, well, thank you for that. And thanks to, to your show. Glad that we're able to have this conversation. You know, I was raised primarily uh, in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, South, in North Minneapolis. Um, my father primarily uh, Dr. Peter Hayden, uh, shout out to him. He runs a, a treatment center here 
uh, called Turning Point. Uh, he grew up as a traditional North Sider. Uh, and then my mother, Judith Mira, and the Mira family, it's about 10 of them, they, uh, they, were, they were South Siders. So, so I've lived in both places and, um, and consider myself really quintessentially a, a, a Minneapolitan, though I did go to high school uh, in college in San Francisco. My mother moved there uh, when I was in the eighth grade, and she still resides there now uh, with a couple of her sisters um, and some family that moved there. So I spent uh, quite a bit of time in San Francisco before coming back uh, to Minnesota, to Minneapolis in the mid-90s, uh, where I, you know, really started to get involved with community issues and think about what 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 the community looked like as I moved, matriculated back uh, to Minneapolis versus when I left as a child. Well, just to give my audience uh, a little bit more information, Jeff is the cousin of my first interview ever, Van Hayden, who was a college roommate of mine. So that is, the, con- right. <laughs> that is the connection for us. So um, what sparked or piqued your interest into politics? You know, it kind of goes back to, you know, I've always had a family that was, you know, really civically minded, you know, as I articulated, my dad uh, runs a a treatment center called the Pacific Treatment Center for African Americans. And and my my grandfather, my mother's father was a a minister um, at a a local and historic church. Um, And so he was very involved in civic issues, things like banning, you know, racist books like Little Black Sambo from uh, the Minneapolis Public School Libraries and things of that nature. Um, and so, you know, that that and my aunt, uh, my mother's sister, just next to her was the first woman in African-American to be the superintendent of the Minneapolis Park Board, which is, you know, pretty significant. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, the Minneapolis Park Board is, is perennially a top two or three park system in the country. And right. so, so, you know, just had that kind of background. And so ultimately when I came back to town and there, that was the year that Minneapolis had been dubbed Murderapolis. Oh. Um, things had really changed mm-hmm. in the community. Uh, there was a lot of violent crime, lots of, of, uh, of homicides and murders. And so, so that, 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 that town, that, that time, that space looked much different than when I left you know, in the late 70s and early 80s when we were still riding our bikes until it got dark outside and didn't have, you know, really those kinds of worries. And so to come back, you know, 15 years later or so and see that, you know, you know, the, the, it, it resembled other big towns that had a lot of crime, that, that really sparked my interest in the understanding why and, and better yet getting involved in, in, in working for the park system and working for the... the uh, the, the local county social service to try to like understand it and then help and then provide you know services and expertise if you will to very vulnerable people to help them you know kind of get back on their feet and hopefully with that make better choices. Well, you and I share one uh, several things in common, but one of them is I too am the grandson of a Baptist minister. Uh, my grand, my dad's dad was a Baptist minister. Um, oddly mm-hmm. enough, we were all raised Catholic, so me and my eight siblings. So, right, right, right. <laughs> my uh, mother was Catholic, so we were raised Catholic. Um, 
And I remember the time because I was here and I went to college and when things were starting to, because when I first moved here in 1980, it mm-hmm. really had a small town feel to it. Right. Uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, you know, it was a big city, but with a v- very comfortable small town feel. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, what do you think were the factors of that? changing well i mean i think that you know there are a multitude of things that happened i mean one minneapolis was growing right it was a growing metropolitan area as you came to school it's got this large land-grant university that Mm -hmm. was attracting people um you know we have a disproportionate amount of fortune 500 companies for a city and a region of our size and so you know, with that, it draws people in to say, hey, come work for Target or 3M or Orlando or U.S. Bank, or, you know, right. Cargill, et cetera. You know, United Healthcare, you know, the, 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 the whole healthcare community was changing in the way that, you know, insurance, you know, the way that you manage, you know, paying for healthcare. And you, that spurned the, the, the real growth of United Healthcare and, and this idea of managed care. But that, but that being said, um, you know, and when you grow, comes everybody. People who got college degrees are coming like you did for their education. People coming for the jobs that support those. Um, and then also people maybe who aren't uh, so learned and maybe don't have those skills that come from regions and parts of the country that, you know, doesn't emphasize education or, or don't have those opportunities. And, and people come and ultimately uh, you know, they, they, they start to, to, to figure out how, you know, how are they going to make it if they can't make it, you know, in the, in the free market economy or whatever is required. In, in addition to that, Minnesota has always been, um, you know, kind of its, its Scandinavian roots. Um, if you think of countries like Sweden and Denmark mm-hmm. and Finland um, have always been about taking care of people and making sure uh, that people, if they don't have the means to take care of themselves, that they, step in its place and the last thing i'll say is it's really cold here so you know if you <laughs> yes. don't if you don't have a place to sleep can't be like san francisco or somewhere in the south and you can you know sleep outside there, there are times where you literally can't be outside here. you gotta gotta bring people in or they'll literally freeze to death and so i think a, co- a combination of those things and then the states around us uh wisconsin and illinois um in other states um they were they were you know kind of pushing welfare reform and and limiting access to those social welfare programs um and ultimately people as they matriculated here would kind of send the message back hey you know life is a little better here come here and and there are things that people can do to help you get yourself together and, and so i think that also started to attract uh some, some migration from those cities and states to 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 Minnesota, Minneapolis, and St. Paul in particular. So with uh, with that background, and uh, you went to Bethel University, what was your uh, choice of study at Bethel? Uh, communications. Um, I went back as an adult learner. Um, so, you know, you kind of bounced around. I went to military. But uh, as I, you know, came back to Minneapolis, I met a wonderful woman, my wife, Barry, who I'm still married to and I have two wonderful kids, Tomas and Sophia. And, and uh and she is, you know, by far the smartest person in the house. And and uh and, and you know, she she pressed me to go back to school and Bethel 
had a very good adult learners program where you were, you know, you could work and do all things you do and you just needed to spend about one evening a week. Um, and then the classes were six to eight weeks capstone kind of program. So that that drew me back to school and and uh, I kind of, you know, really focused around communications. At that point, I was starting to think about politics a bit. I was on my local neighborhood association. I had um, uh, worked for a local council member and started to really understand the intricacies of government, not just, you know, where most people just kind of we exist in mm-hmm. the space government kind of does what it does. And, you know, you 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 abide by it. If you got a problem, you call somebody, but you're not really in it as a career and a profession to really understand what it does. And, and I thought communications would be a, a really good. I mean, the, the the art of communication came from political discourse. That's kind of where the discipline came from. So I thought that was, you know, really in alignment with what my interests were. You kind of slid or slid uh, or slipped in there and said um, you were in the military. What branch? Oh, I was in the Air Force. I was in the United States Air Force in the late 80s. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I I was a medic there, and uh, this was kind of pre, uh, certainly pre-Iraqi and pre-Kuwaiti war. It was peacetime, and, you know, mm-hmm. um, was enlisted in San Francisco, did my basic training in, in Texas, Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. That's where, that's where their basic training outfit is, and then I did some training in the northern part of Texas and then spent mostly all my time in the at a strategic a SAC air base uh, uh, that trained pilots um, in the in the kind of central California in the San Joaquin uh, uh, Delta region. Well, my dad was a military man at the age of 14. He lied about his age so uh, <laughs> and fought in the Korean War at 15. Uh, wow. When people find out that others are in the military, it's almost become cliche for people to say, thank you for your service. How do you feel? Because I've always wanted, and he's since passed, so I never got to ask him this question. How do you feel about that statement these days in this country? When people just kind of throw out, when they hear that you've been in the military, thank you for your service. Do you think most people are sincere or is just a become a, United States cliche? You know, um, I mean, I, you know, like anything else, I think, you know, some of it becomes cliche. And I think, you know, people say it. I mean, I think people sincerely, and maybe that's the optimist in me, sincerely mean it, right? Like they're, they're, they're giving you a compliment um, for, for, for doing your work. You know, the question is, does people actually know what it does and what does that mean? And you know, to each person that will be different. I mean, there was a time in the, you know, after the, during the Vietnam War and after the, you know, Vietnam War, with a, you know, that, that there were just a ton of people who looked at the military in a much different way and, right. and felt like, you know, um, that, you know, they, you, you were in the military and you were, it, it wasn't looked upon in, in the same way. You know, I, I think things changed, started to change um, in the, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the kind of Iraq, you know, time and that in that time that, that you know, because at the time, I mean, we know a little different now, but at the time, people thought that they were fighting, you know, against the regime. Um, not, not to say that the Iraqi regime and Saddam Hussein wasn't oppressive, but there was this sense that he had developed these weapons of mass destruction, and that 
he could, you know, annihilate us all or do significant damage. Now that has been kind of disproven and there's a lot of research. We we would take up all of our time talking about <laughs> right. that conspiracy. But I think people went there for the right reason, Colin Powell and General Schwarzkopf. And then I think post 9-11, things changed dramatically in the way that people looked at the military. Because at that point, there had never been an attack. There was an early attack on the on the on the on the on the on the towers. Right. A bomb that went off in the you know in the in the ground. But that the magnitude of the Twin Towers, the Pentagon, and then the, of course the ill-fated flight in Pennsylvania. I think that that really was the time in which people realized that we weren't, we didn't go off to a foreign war to a foreign land to fight. You know, even in World War II, World War One, you know, nobody was around War 1812 or even the Civil War. But that was that someone could attack us here, um, and that that was um, an attack on our country and. And what people believe is, is their freedom, their way of life. So I think now people, at least at least that stretch, people started to say that in the sense that they felt vulnerable and they knew that the people, the men and women that decided to go into the military were serving um, and putting themselves between them, uh, putting themselves in harm's way, but putting themselves between them and someone taking away their freedoms and their liberties. So without going into one's political ideology one way or the other, mm -hmm. I believe that that's, that's where that came from. Um, and so I think people say it uh, sincerely because I think that they were able to see firsthand, um, you know, with all of the people that died, the first responders, the, the, the police, the fire, you know, uh, uh, folks, uh, in others, a lot of people were touched by that, and a lot of people knew people who died in those attacks, and I think that that's when the tide changed. Well, I just, I just wanted to ask somebody who's kind of gone through it because I have a nephew who's he's a lifer in the army, and he's made it to the highest rank that a non-con can make it. And um, I have a sister-in-law who served also, and like I said, my dad. So. I always kind of wonder with people being sincere and whatnot. So to kind of move on, what sparked that interest into uh, running for office? And how many times did you run for office? How many times did you win? Yeah, so I I, uh, I went on to work in human service. And then uh, in 2000, I started working. I had a friend. Uh, who worked, who I was working with in community, former council member Gary Schiff, who ran for office in the Ninth Ward in the South, in the, you know, quintessentially South Minneapolis, if you think of Powderhorn Park, mm -hmm. um, that area, or even there at the corner where people on 38th in Chicago, and people call George Ford Square, that there's, there's a corner of that, that, that was the Ninth Ward. So that part of town. Um, and he won and then asked, and I'd helped him on his campaign, and we had worked on neighborhood issues together. We have a pretty well-developed neighborhood organization that's publicly funded in Minneapolis. And he asked what I come down to be his aide. Um, and so, you know, they, they are policy aides and people who support the elected officials. And so I didn't have any experience there, but I did have experience working with people, especially low-income and marginalized people, people of color. And then, of course, this family background that we articulated, uh, that I articulated earlier in our interview. Um, and he felt like 
um, that I could be an asset to working and getting close and staying connected with people while, you know, learning, you know, the intricacies of, you know, how cities work, the fire department and the planning department and the development department and all of these other, you know, like, you know, structures that make cities work. So I went down there on a whim and started working for him. And from there, I really started to understand how it worked and then was encouraged um, in 90 uh, or in 2004, uh, there was an election cycle brewing and there was a redistricting for the city. And every 10 years after the census, the government from the federal government, state government, county and municipal government has to look at their census patterns. And if there's enough deviation, meaning enough movement in terms of population in one geographic area to another, then you have to redistrict that and reapport, uh, you know, the, the, the people there and that, that pushed one council member out of his district uh, and left a council district or ward open. And so I ran for that open seat in, in 2005. And so long, hard, cut to the chase, long, hard, fought uh, uh, primary, and I ended up losing my 79 votes wow. in order to go into the general election yeah. to the eventual winner. Um, and so, um, and, you know, after that, and there was a lot going on in that race, and I got a good understanding and taste of how politics actually work and how campaigns work. And, and it wasn't all that pleasant, to be <laughs> frank with you. Right. Um, and, and I certainly wasn't prepared because it wasn't as civically minded as my family and my upbringing was. It wasn't, we weren't, a, 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 no one else, no one had ever run for office. And we, we really didn't get involved in that. We were more service driven and that kind of stuff in the community. And so, um, so I lost that. And that's when I decided to go back to school. And I was working uh, for an organization that uh, worked statewide on, on trying to end long-term homelessness. So I worked there and got a chance to drive all over the state and really get a sense of seeing the state from another vantage point and was just perfectly content with doing that work and growing. And then the state representative at the time, uh, many people know her, Neva Walker, who was the first African-American woman uh, to be elected into the state house, decided to not run. Uh, that was to give you context about that was the year Obama was running. So she let folks know in December, you needed to, you know, get a campaign up and running, you know, that, that next year. And I had run a campaign though unsuccessful. So um, matter of fact, Congressman Ellison, or now Attorney General Ellison, yes. um, you know him from school, but, but Congress, at the time of Congress, he called and others and encouraged me to run. And I was very hesitant to do it. And then they, but when they said that they would, you know, help me, you know, take take a look at the, the run that I had before where I was, you know, needed help and, and more, more resources or even a better strategy. Uh, but they thought that all in all, I ran well um, and had good ideas and a great potential and they supported me. So I ran that year and won uh, a seat in the Minnesota House of Representatives. So, and you, you kind of answered this. You said that people like uh, Attorney General uh, Ellison uh, kind of tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, you should run. But, you know, is it 
is it really that way, a kind of a groundswell where people kind of identify one person, or does that one person go, damn it, I'm going to run? <laughs> I always wondered about that. It's both ends. Um, it depends. You know, you got people who have, you know, started thinking about this in high school or college and, and really kind of designed the, the way the degrees they get and how they do it and all that kind of stuff around you know, running for office. You have people who are, uh, you know, say a carpenter. You know, I've had a friend, Tom Bach, former Senator Tom Bach. He's just, uh, or I guess he's still a senator, but he's retiring. You know, he was uh, from up north on the Iron Range. He was a labor leader. You know, he, he his his way was he was a carpenter. He became a, a business agent in the carpenters. He became a top negotiator. He then became a big deal at the leadership of the AFL-CIO. And then he ran for office, right? Like, so he, he started out with a hammer in his hand. Um, I know people that are lawyers and that they wanted to do it. I know people like myself that were community-based people who, who just got involved with it very organically trying to, you know, be part of a solution as opposed to the problem. Um, you know, you got, you got folks come from just people like nurses, doctors, you know, we got a, you know, we got a, a an election happening right now between Governor Tim Walz, who was a teacher, right, um, and in a in in a in a National Guardist, um, versus uh, uh, a Dr. Scott Jensen, the Republican, who is you know a family physician and a very well accomplished doctor, right? And they're they're not only are their political ideologies different; they they come from you know their 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 life experiences are different, right? And so. So, and I served with him in the in Minnesota Senate as well, uh, Dr. Jensen. So, so it just depends, but it can happen either way. You can have a groundswell of people, or you could say, this is what I want to do. And you go out and, and find those people and, and make your pitch to them. You got to do that regardless, but tell them why you want to run. So, right. so it's, it's the, the legislature in particular, even more than Congress, which gets a little different because it's, it's, it's so big and so much money to run. But the legislature, you know, often are just leaders in their community uh, who decide to make a difference. So you uh, represented uh, District 62 in the state of Minnesota. Is there a reason why that area? Um, because it's, uh, isn't it like uh, south, the, the kind of like the beginning of South Minneapolis area? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I got in the, the House and then the longtime Senator Linda Berkland retired three years into me being in the House of Representatives. And so I then got in the special election because she, uh, she left midterm and got into the Minnesota Senate. But in that area of town is the, is the part of town that my mother grew up in. Okay. Um, and so, you know, my grandfather bought a house in that area about 1918 is what I think, you know, my, my folks tell me. So, you know, we've been in, grew up multiple generations in that part of town. So that was just the kind of part of town I matriculated to when I came back from California. And ultimately that's where I did a lot of this community-based work and, and you know, and, and, and even the work that I did for, for, local, for, for the county and, and human service, I was, Station there. Um, I lived in the in those communities. So that's so when I really, you know, when people started to think about me running, and I started to to entertain it, it was really kind of a no brainer because though that was the area that a lot of my service 
Um, that's where I that's, that's where I did a lot of disturbance for the community was in that area. So, you know, you win the election, you you get sworn in, you start serving the people, and did it go as you thought it would, or was mm-hmm. it like holy mess? What have I gotten myself into? You know, um, one of my favorite things I say to you know these days to people is both in. It was like you know an amazing journey to get there, eye opening, and just you know for a person like me who's really like likes people and is very curious. I've always been very curious as a child. It was just so many things to to dive into and to learn about and to figure out. But we also you know uh, joke and say it in jest that when you first get into the legislature, uh, it's like drinking uh, water through a fire hydrant is the (laughs) saying that we use. Okay. Um, So it's coming at you pretty hard and you can't, you know, you you don't always ingest everything or or figure it out. But, you know, as you learn and and if you're fortunate enough to get reelected and and learn, you know, that thing slows down a little bit. You start to figure out the areas that either you have expertise in or that you really have a passion for. For me, um, you know, my the, the, the focus for me was a lot of the health and human service. Since I had this background already delivering the human service, meaning that, you know, people who needed social welfare came to me and I helped them get through the process of, of, of giving them the resources they need to feed their family. I, I, I understood that and worked on homeless issues and other then I started to understand the healthcare side um, of human service. So the delivery of Medicaid, Medicare services, hospitals. So I really immersed myself in, in, that, in, that, in that part of the, of the work. But, you know, then I started to learn about local government and, and how that, you know, works and what the, what, how does the tax structure work? And then I learned about economic development and, and how, does this, how, how do we feed to the growth of the city and then, you know, I got into leadership and how do you run the place? And, and, and you know, and I just couldn't get enough of it. And I, I was the guy that, you know, raised my hand, you know, anytime somebody needed something, needed to volunteer, needed to be put on a committee, needed to be, you know, to, to help out with something. And, and I just immersed myself fully in the process and, and the work and, and the focus on, and always with a real focus. And I guess, I could say this at the outset, you know, for one of the reasons why I ran it, you know, I, I, you know, really identify with marginalized people, not only being black, but, you know, my mother was 19 when she had me. My father was 23. You know, my father was still using drugs and alcohol. Uh, shout out to him. He'll be 50 years sober uh, this coming January. That's cool. Um, so that meant I was six years old when he got sober. My mother went back and got on social welfare programs and then and then in, enrolled in the University of Minnesota where you went to school mm-hmm. and got her degree and then became a great uh, civil servant. But but so they were fortunate. They were they were, you know, the outcome of their life wasn't, you know, they they, they beat the odds, if you will. And so I knew uh, and understood that you can beat the odds. And I knew that government had a place in that. Right. I didn't really understand how it worked, but I knew that you could do it. So when I finally got into the position of where I am today um, or where I was then, I really uh, like knew, like like I, I can help this process and people can kind of now, you know, not 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 have to live such a tough life and not, not have to be subjected to all of the social ills 
that we should be using these resources to kind of lift people up. And so, so that's, that's really where I focused on and that, and then the economic development and then the focus on equity, really trying to, you know, like, like talk about, not, not just talk about all the disparities that you hear people talk about, but actually do something about it. So I tried to use the platform as a legislator, as a leader, as a community leader, and then the expertise in some of these, you know, government systems to try to target them um, to the to, to the most needy in the community. So you um, you're in office. You uh, continue to uh, serve the people. How many times? Um, how many times were you elected, and how long did you serve? So yeah, so I served. I got elected in, you know, 08. So so I served. I started in nine. I got reelected in ten. I then had a special election in eleven, and then you served the corresponding year. And then an election in. Oh, I feel like if that was then I. Oh yeah, so then I had to. So I only had to serve one year for the for the for the for the midterm, and then I got elected the next year in the Senate. Then spent four years. In 16, and then came back in 20, and then in 20 was when I had a hard-fought primary election uh, from the gentleman who is the senator now. Um, and so we had a hard-fought pr- primary election during kind of you know the the COVID year, mm-hmm. uh, coupled with the George Floyd you know scenario for that that time. If we all can think about where we were then, so then I was in in election there, and then. I lost the primary election in 20, um, and so then I uh, so I left the office in 21 and started working for the firm I work for currently, and and started the kind of work that you see me do today, representing clients and 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 doing the the, the television and media work and, and the kind of punditry we like to call it. Uh, that's when I started that. Well, um, do you have any aspirations to run again? Maybe a different office, or are you done with? Are you done with politics as far as uh, serving? You know, I, I, the way that I look at it, I think that it's been a nice run for me, um, and I say that you know, really, genuinely. I mean, I, I never in a million years, you know, like would have thought that I would have been, you know, you know, been been in the position to run, um, and win and serve and and all and serve and really high levels and, you know, make decisions for millions of people, you know, you know, if you will. So, I mean, I really am humbled by it. I didn't want to lose. And, you know, there's some, there's, you know, it's pretty, pretty easy to kind of look up my race. And like I said, I, I, I want this to be, you know, I want people to hear about this and think about this, um, you know, in young people and, and you know, old people for that matter, to think about this as, as an inspirational thing. Politics had you know there's been the greatest peaks of my life and there's been some valleys as well um and i take them both um as a blessing you know what i mean from mm-hmm. from god and and so i i feel really good my 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 family is is good and they you know a lot of people don't make it through uh you know i said you know my wife was with me the whole time my kids were a lot of them you know my both my kids are virtually raised in the politics and so i i just i just I want to enjoy that. I want to enjoy them. I want to, my, my work in helping people 
um, interact with, with and, and ask for things and get things. Um, that's, that's my work is my day job is being a lobbyist. You know, there's not many people who look like me. I'm, you know, people who can't see me, obviously we're on the phone. Right. I'm an African, I'm an African American man. Right. If you didn't know that. And there's not many people who look like me, who have my background, uh, who serve as a lobbyist that, that, that help connect people to the resources. There's not, I, as a matter of fact, I think I'm the only contract lobbyist in the state. There's some folks that do this work for counties and cities. Um, Frankly, we don't see, I only know a couple of people who do the media work that I do, mm -hmm. right? Um, right. Um, when you watch the Almanac or at issue, I'm going to do a big plug. I'm going to do uh, the election night coverage on CARE 11, the local NBC affiliate here. So I, I think that there's a space and a place for that. Um, and also, and then and then allow younger people or other people to, to kind of take up that space and and I'm actively engaged in helping people be, you know, if they want to run for office or if they want to be staff or they want to be, they want to do media work like you're doing and others. So I, I think that there's a place for us in our community to be able to have your time and something and then move on. And so, so that's a long way of saying, I don't think so. I never say never, but it's not, it's not really something I'm planning for. Well, the only other uh, African-American uh, lobbyist that I knew, interestingly enough, was <laughs> a guy I grew up with in, in St. Louis, Missouri. We went to grade school and high school together. And he became, he went into service and then became a um, lobbyist in D.C., the federal, mm -hmm. <laughs> the federal level. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. um, it's it's not you're right it's not a common thing so um yeah and it's it not not only is it a good career and you know it comes with its own you know set of set of uh, stereotypes but it's a really good career and for instance you know the who you lobby for is public but you know you know organizations like phyllis wheatley you know it's a it's a, a almost a hundred year organ you know african-american organization mm -hmm. that that was a settlement house. It was a place that people could go to uh, and actually sleep and eat there uh, in the early 20th century where when they wouldn't let black people <laughs> go to a lot of places in, right. this, in this city. You weren't welcome. Or organizations, you know, like Walker West Music Academy, which is a, a music academy that teaches, you know, fine arts and music in St. Paul um, that was started by Dr. You know, West that was that, that basically saw at the same point where where the community was was devolving and he said he thought that you know if he can get kids to play I think he likes to say if he if they could put down the guns and pick up the keyboard he thinks he'd have a better place I'm working to help them get a new facility uh you know like organizations you know like that the Center for economic inclusion which is a really new organization startup that is really taking a look at at being a think tank to, to make Tavis a much more inclusive economy, um, you know all the great things that this state has to offer, and why do we, why 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 are African Americans and people color lagging behind? I'm helping them with uh, an inclusive growth fund to help fund you know women and black and women Latino businesses get capitalized and, and have a strong voice at the capital in terms of their presence. Right? I could I don't want to name you all my clients, but I'm just telling you that I was passionate to help them mm -hmm. uh, get a voice at the Capitol, use my resources, my knowledge of the system, my family's history, et cetera, 
in order, you know, we're working on a huge aquatic center, a, a stadium-like center that will have the Olympic trials right in North Minneapolis that um, Eric Kabinger and my good friend Malik Rucker, who's, who's helping to run it, um, young man, and, and Eric Kabinger's got a legendary family, a philanthropic family, to put that in North Minneapolis and use the proceeds of these big tournaments to help kids learn how to swim and and, right. and to give them safe places, uh, you know, to recreate. So, so, so once again, you can hear me get passionate. <laughs> I can talk about it all day, but I love, I love doing that aspect of the work. As well, well, I'm a, I'm a definitely a benefactor of the St. Louis used to have a CETA program, mm-hmm. and every mm-hmm. summer I got a. If I didn't work for my uncle, who I mean, not uncle, my godfather, who uh, ran a youth sports program. Um, I would work for, uh, find a job at CETA program. And one summer I got a job at the U S attorney's office. Mm -hmm. And that was Mm -hmm. a big deal for me to be Mm -hmm. able to work side by side, uh, federal law enforcement, um, people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who also were in charge of kind of keeping an eye on (laughs) the police and other things like that. So, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let me move this forward uh, for uh, for time's sake. We're in an election year, and we've um, really are still kind of reeling from the uh, from the last national big national election of you know electing a president and all the stuff that we went through. Has this country? Um, Recovered from the election of two, and I'll and I'll say stated 2016, the national election, and for me, I kind of look at things as there were a lot of angry people that this country elected a two-term black president, or am I just way off with some conspiracy theory? Yeah, I mean, I think you're seeing, I mean, I don't, I don't think, I think that's undisputed <laughs> that there are just a lot of people who, you know, I mean, there's just a lot, I mean, I mean this country's history is, is you know, I don't have to tell you as a black man, I mean, it, it's, 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 it is, it is not, you know, it is, it has not been friendly, you know, by design to, to black people or, or brown people or, or immigrant people, right? Like, you know, unless you're white and immigrant, right? Like, like it, it is, it is. You know, we have always been the, you know, essentially the commodity in this, in this, in this, in this experiment we call democracy and capitalism, right? Like it, it, it has been built to thrive off of, you know, building things is, you know, to 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 get the biggest profit margin you can. You know, I know that we we there's a lot of ways to go to talk about slavery and colonialism and others. We certainly, you know, can do that, but I think that. People talk about that all the time, right? But, you know, at the end of the day, if you're in business, no matter where you work, somebody's making some money, right? Like, like they, they, you go out there, you work, and whatever the boss is paying you or your organization is paying you, in order to pay you, they got to make that much, and then they got to pay themselves, and then they got to make a profit. So that means, right, that there's got to be, you know, somebody who's, who's at the lower end of that scale. Well, think about it if you were going out and tilling the land for free. I didn't have to pay you nothing. 
right? That's 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 a lot of profit that you make. Or or if you're a migrant worker, uh, Latino, Mexican, and kind of Central American in California, and you're picking avocados, you know, that's the, the part of town that I went to the service in, right? And you're picking avocados and tomatoes in California, which is like corn and wheat here, mm-hmm. and you're paying them little or nothing, and you're not giving them any rights, and and you're you're not allowing the kids to go to school, or you're or or if you are letting them go to school, the schools are substandard because you don't want to spend the money. I mean, this country has been built based on that. And I actually think that there are people who really get that. And I think there's a whole bunch of people who don't get that. Um, and I think that there's a whole bunch of white people, if I may be frank, um, who also are low income, who also maybe didn't have they have to deal with the atrocities right. of being a slave or or colonialism in terms of the brutality, but they certainly weren't making any money either. And so I, I got this theory that often the best the best way to divide people is to take white poor white people and tell them that the reason that they're poor is because of that black person over there. Right. Right. Not not because yeah. of corporate greed, not because of profit margins, not because of how the system works, but the reason why you can't make your bills, the reason why you, you're you're living in a, a situation where the, the roof is leaking is because JB, see him over there? He got a little more than you. He got that off of your back. Not that he went to college, not that he worked his tail off, not that he worked two, three jobs or whatever, you know, your career did. Not because not your, your, your best friend and my cousin Van has right now is working 14-hour days on a movie set as we speak cool. and has been doing this since you've known him for mm-hmm. over 30 years. Not, not, not whatever he's accumulated because of that work, but because somehow he took it from them. That, that in, an, in an essence is kind of what goes on here. And Barack Obama was the manifestation of that to a lot of people. They didn't see the president as someone who was bright and brilliant and all that we know that he's to be. They looked at him as somehow uh, or some, a thousand conspiracy, but the biggest one that nobody talks about is that how did he get there and I'm not there? How, how did he deserve that? He, he must have did something that took away from me in order for him to get there, him and, him and that wife of his. And so that, 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 that gets pushed into the ethos, into people's minds through various ways, social media, regular media, uh, sermons at church, uh, conversations at the barbershop, yep. family. Yep. Um, all of those things, and it becomes part of the underlying kind of kind of conversation that people have. And and so I think that former President Trump understood. Now he understood it, <laughs> and, and the Steve Bannons and all these jokers that you're seeing now that are coming under 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 scrutiny. They understood it, and they understood what levers to pull with people to say. It's not about President, former President Trump's business practices where he wouldn't pay his, yeah. his vendors and file bankruptcy if they didn't take what he was offering them or, or all of the things that he used to manipulate the systems and the laws. It wasn't his fault that somehow that was that Barack Obama and those other smart Negroes who, <laughs> who, you, who got into school on your back and affirmative action and and, and all of these things that we spent the money on 
and that could have went to you, and it didn't. And now look, they're gonna take over. Like that whole, you know, we could drum this thing up for five hours, but right. that to me is not like a single. Like it is about President Obama, but it was about something much bigger, and it been happening much longer than when the president, you know, got elected. Well, That's, and I think about a third of the country is really grappled by that. Right. No, I uh, totally understand that because um, about 20, 25 years ago, I taught at a area learning center in St. Paul, which, you know, we now call charter schools or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And um, we were having like a civics class and we were talking, me and uh, the person who was leading the class was an African-American woman. And we were kind of discussing some things. And we got on that very topic because one of the kids who was a Caucasian young man said, so why do those Hmong people get all these benefits? Mm -hmm. And it kind of caught us off guard at first. And we said, okay, what do you mean by that? And he kept mm -hmm. talking. He's like, well, the government gives them this and gives them a car and gives them and give and give and give, and it's like, all right, where did you hear that from? He said, well, my parents say that all the time, and my uncles and this. I said, do you not understand that most, and it, you kind of brought this up earlier about uh, the Norwegians and Swedes and how they actually give because that's the way they were when they first came to this country, but not only that, when we bring in um, refugees or uh, immigrants to this state, most of the time they are church funded. And we had mm -hmm. to explain that to them. It's like, no, sorry. There's, they may be on some aid, but they don't get cars and they don't get all these things. They might, I said, the church that brought them here may set them up for that. And then it's that in she and I went on to explain, now the first group that comes in, they pool together their money and they bring more over. And it's a, after a while, that group actually takes care of itself as more mm -hmm. and more of their people come through. And I said, unfortunately, it's never explained that way. It's easier to just have to say that the government did it and now if it continues to force that wedge in between people that you get it, I don't, especially poor people of any race. Because then Yeah, I mean that that, that game is being played on African American people, you know, um in black and in Somali people or among yes. people, right? Like yes. I can't tell you how many of my, you know, brothers and how my guys, you know, will tell me and, and, and sit at the bar and almost point in my chest or at the barbershop and tell me that these guys don't have to pay taxes and these guys don't have to do this and that and the other. And, you know, um, it, it's, 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 it, it, it has to do, and I've said this to someone today, a friend who's going through some family stuff and divorces and, and, you know, people live in their own bubble, right? right? They're influenced by their own and friends. And most of the time, most people, not all, but most people, are around like-minded people. <laughs> I mean, that's just yeah. natural, right? Like, I, 
I'm comfortable. Like I met you at my cousin's, you know, bar, you know, birthday party, and you guys had all your people you grew up with, and you guys tell your stories, and you like each other. That's why you usually don't go to birthday parties of people you don't like, right? right. Like you go, that's correct. And you and you you help barbecue, and you have a good time, and you and you and you and you. And you, you I mean, you may have some spirited debates, but for the most part, you're you're like it. And if you if if no one else is helping you to influence that, and I'm able, so for instance, as a civic leader and a former state senator, I can come in and start to tell you, listen, man, let me tell you how it really works. Right. Everybody will shut up and start listening, like they're listening to this podcast. And I can tell you, tell you, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna tell you my version of the world. And either that is the version, but if I really want to push a message, even if I know it's BS, I can push that, and I have enough respect and clout in that community where people will start to repeat that and repeat that and repeat that. And the next thing you know, it is the law. It is that because Jeff Hayden said it. I know a guy, he's a politician, Senator, this guy, you see him on TV. Here's what he told me. Right. And so like that, that, that unfortunately has been going on to help divide people. You know, the, 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 the terminology is divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so if you can if I can divide these folks, if they can come together and act as one, well, we'd be just fine. But if I can divide you by race or religion or ethnicity, um, and I can keep you divided, then that person who's doing that is usually gonna be the person who can win. Well, that's they call it now living within your silo, you know, your silos. You don't right. you don't let anything in as as except for the stuff that you really want to hear that strengthens your beliefs in the first place. You don't want anything that's contradictory or may educate you to change your mind on a topic. You just sit in your silo and you just keep living off that information that feeds your, you know, your uh, chain of thought. Now, I mean, I mean, think about social media really quick. First of all, I think about my mother, but this is really everybody, but my mother will say things like, you know, she's, she's phenomenal, lives by herself in California, you know, like, you know, she's, 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 yep, she's, she's, she's doing her thing, drives and go to store, goes to church and does her thing. So she, this is someone that's like in the nursing home. And she's always like, how do they know I want those shoes? How do they, so she, you know, right. what, you know, and she's looking at Facebook, well, well, you know, and, 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 oh, what, 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 you know, and she, she starts talking about it and she's like, how does this thing know? She doesn't understand the idea that when she went and looked at some shoes, right. that that algorithm, that, that click was sold mm-hmm. to Macy's and Macy's in a matter of seconds is feeding her back right. a whole bunch of things that she was looking at saying, how about this? How about that? I know I didn't understand it. So take that up to the algorithm. I don't get a lot of Trump messages on Facebook. Matter of fact, I don't get any Republican stuff much at all. The only time I do is I got to go outside, go look for Now, you know, because I'm doing this work, mm-hmm. I want to understand. I got to understand Republican politics, Democratic politics. When I go to, when I go to work as a lobbyist, I got to talk to Republicans and Democrats to get the work done. When I go, you know, tonight I'm going on Almanac, you know, here in a bit. Right. Um, and and so, so I got to go out to get that to come back in. But if I don't go out looking for it, I get a steady stream of 
you know, golf equipment, DFL politics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Foods, mm -hmm. recipes, the stuff that I enjoy, I get I get fed that. And I don't even, well, this is the point I'm trying to make, and I know we're running out of time. I don't even know why until I knew why. It's it, because I had to run for office and had to really understand how social media worked as a way to get my message out. But prior to that understanding, most people don't understand how it works. They just pick up their phone and they get lost in it. And whatever messages is coming, they believe it. Well, um, on top of that, it seems like now people want to run celebrities. And that, yes. that to me, the celebrityism of politics Right. It's really unhealthy. I, uh, right. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, well, the, the, the celebrityism, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, like from, from this perspective, it doesn't make sense in terms of do they have the expertise, do they know what they're doing? So I'm not arguing that. Mm -hmm. But politics, you know, to some extent, getting elected is a popularity contest. Now, you hope that the person that's in front of you and is smiling and kissing babies and is very articulate, you also hope that that person has a track record and has some qualities that means that they can understand and go to the, to the Capitol or, or City Hall and represent you well. But the art of getting elected really has a lot to do with, you know, do people like you? And so think about this from a celebrity's perspective. If I already know people like me, we, we call it name recognition, right? So if I already, from the beginning, if I could say everybody knows Jeff Hayden, his name recognition's high. And I look around, and because Jeff was entertaining me, he, you know, he was a stinger or whatever, and, you know, he, you know, he's a football player or whatever, he brought me joy and entertainment. I like him. So about three-fourths of the battle is done because that's what someone who doesn't, they don't know, who nobody knows who they are and nobody's ever met them, that's what they're trying to do is say, hey, I'm Jeff Hayden. You don't know me, but I'm a good guy. Let me tell you why. Versus I'm Jeff Hayden, and I used to play for the Minnesota Vikings. Remember me? Number 34. <laughs> and, and you used to. So, so we're seeing that right now, right, in Georgia with Herschel Walker. Correct. Right? It is clear. <laughs> That Herschel Walker, and I will say this, and I'm always careful in my, in my business now not to go after people, but it is as clear as anybody to see that Herschel Walker has no business being in the United States Senate. Right. However, Herschel Walker started this race with two things that is hard to get, name recognition and people liked him. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. So they didn't know much about him, and as they're finding out more, I <laughs> think they're having some buyer's remorse over in the Republican Party. But he did start out with that, with those two things ahead of everybody. I know him and in a place like Georgia where football is king, you know, the SEC, football's king in the whole right. region. Yep. And he brought a lot of joy to people. And Georgia just won the national championship, even though, you know, of course, he didn't play for the current team, but mm -hmm. he gets to hang out on the sidelines and shake all everybody's hand. And, and, and so all the things that you kind of need to get people to know who you are before you can even articulate why you're qualified. He, he had that. Now, 
The problem is, though, is that he was unqualified to do the job, and I think that that's what you're seeing in the in the in the process of the election cycle. However, he still is polling very well down there, even though everybody can see that this is a, yes. at best. I'm going to be really good here that this this is a misalignment mm. for his skill set, and I'm, I'm being very yes, kind and gracious. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to be. He comes off as an idiot and a buffoon in most of his speeches right. and whatnot. So, and, oh, it yeah. just, and, and it just bothers me that they would take somebody like him or um, um, the the rapper. Um, um, oh, Killer uh, <laughs> Mike or oh, Kanye West. Kanye Yale. West, yes. They would take somebody like him and run him from office, knowing that he's unfit to serve only just to fill a spot because they want to have uh, voting power when it comes to, you know, things in the country, you know, because they know they can take somebody like that and basically make him a puppet and say, Okay, this is how you vote on this, and this is how you're going to vote on that, and he just stands there and goes, "Okay," and he does it, and and it's just to me just irritating and just sickening. Uh, when I when I when I first got to the city council, I'll just mm-hmm. leave you with this anecdote. Uh, one of an old uh, you know lobbyist, one old you know someone that had been around there a long time, and kind of pulled me to the side, or maybe we had a, a beer or something. You know, they're helping me. And they said, you know, the first thing you need to learn about this job, young man, I said, what? They said, learn how to count to seven. Because in, the, in the Minneapolis, there was seven city council. You, you, there's right. 13 of them, and you need seven to get something done. And then when I got to the state house, they said, learn to count to 68, because there's 134, and 68 was one more than you need. And then when you got to the Senate, it was 34. Every time I got to one of those environments, the first thing that someone would tell me was, you got to learn how to count. They didn't say calculus. They didn't say that to count to a civilian. They learned how to count so you have one more vote than the other side to get your issue done. I know that, that does, that's repulsive to people. I know that that is not what people idealize politics to be. Mm-hmm. And it certainly isn't what I'm in it for. But I never forgot that when I had to bring something through. I had to make sure that I had the votes. And so Herschel Walker or Kanye West or any, uh, 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 you know, whoever, uh, Matt Burke or whoever, what it is, is is it's you, you, all you need is one more person to win an election. You can win the election. My my friend in, in Brooklyn Park, Hollis Winston, who's running for the third time for Brooklyn Park mayor, he lost by two votes a year ago for a special election or two years ago. Two votes. Right. I, I went to the golf course with some friends of mine who will be named, who I won't name, who lived in Brooklyn Park, and they were like, when's the election, Senator? I said it was yesterday. It was three people who lived in Brooklyn Park in my force, and if they'd have voted, he'd have been there. <laughs> so, so I mean, go. this is the ultimate winner-take-all Right. Uh, event. There's no silver. There's no silver medal. There's no consolation prize. Right. It's 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 win or nothing. And that and I'm saying that to say that's why you'll see people run Herschel Walkers or use Kanye West or or bring Matt Burke or or, or whoever 
if they think that that will give them the votes that they need. Uh, as we wrap this up, and I know this is kind of unfair for me to ask this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What? How do you think the national races are going to land, and what do you think is going to be the most important um, issues by that time we go to vote and the same thing locally here in Minnesota? So nationally, um, just looking, you know, I mean, I know the Democrats, um, you know, are running um, the, 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 just by the way of history, the president, the first year that a president goes in, his party, his or her party or his, because we haven't had a woman yet, mm -hmm. usually loses you know, the, the, the House of Representatives by significant vote. Just the way, that's just history. It's only been a couple of times during the Gulf War with George Bush, he kind of maintained right after the impeachment of Bill Clinton, there was a lot of people felt like that was unfair. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, even, you know, Barack Trump doesn't make a difference. So I feel like the House of Representatives, and I hate to say it because I got really good friends that are running there, may lose power. Um, the Senate is a little different because House districts are a little more compact. Uh, the Senate are statewide races. And so I think that, I think especially when you see what, what's happening, I think, think the two states to look for is Georgia with this Ralph Nero Warnock, uh, Herschel Walker, I think, Reverend Warnock will win, and then Fetterman and then Dr. Oz, the celebrity candidate, speaking of, in Pennsylvania. I think you'll see Fetterman, you know, as long as he has some health issues, as long as he able to, you know, show that he's, he's able to fit to serve. I think you'll see that. And with that, I think you'll see the Senate continue and maybe even gain a seat to Democrats. Um, you know, of course, presidential election isn't up there, in, you know, nationally. And then locally, I think, um, you know, the House of Representatives is Democrat right now. I think that they are running a very close race and could pull it out. The former group that I used to be a part of was the, the Senate and the Democrats in the Senate have a pathway but it is an upward climb because um, they have to win a district in uh, a couple of districts outstate that have been not going our way, have been trending the, the or I shouldn't say ours, I'll give you objective, have been trending the Republicans' way. And then I think that Governor Walls, though the race is tightening up, um, I think that he demonstrated through extraordinary times that, you know, he's fit to lead. And, and, um, and I think that he, has been able. This is, but these the, the, the key issues are, of course, the Dobbs decision, which was the revocation of Roe versus Wade, and that has really stirred up Democrats and independent and women voters. But the things that work against them beyond the historical precedents is inflation, is the economy as a whole, inflation, um, and what people are paying, and the sticker shock that they're paying just to get their groceries every day that we're all seeing. Um, and then also, you know, post-pandemic, the rise in crime across the nation. Um, you know, people tend to blame that on the party that's in. And, and Democrats, fairly, unfairly, fortunately, unfortunately, um, I think, you know, look to be one that wants to be much, has a much more fair uh, uh, process in making sure, especially here in, in, our, in our state where George Floyd was murdered, is to make sure that we, um, have the police and they're they're protecting us, um, but they're doing so in not a way that 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 does what we just saw happen to George Floyd, and and I think people are trying to grapple with that 
but they but you know this 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 issue of of security of being harmed that that often trumps your ability to 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 work to do the hard work to to get the right police there sometimes you just say i don't care who it is as long as they're in the way between me and the person who wants to harm me so democrats are having a time trying to nuance that conversation of being safe and having the right folks republicans are just saying hey just get more police out there and democrats you know are soft on crime so so those are the big issues that are the drivers uh the big high messages that are the drivers and and that's why i think that you'll see kind of a divided government moving uh forward and nationally and, and in minnesota politically we you were discussing really really quick here you were discussing inflation Am I just being too simplistic when I think we just came out of a pandemic, a lot of businesses lost money, the ones that survived are price gouging to to make up for what they lost, and in some cases they know they can have an effect on the political world as as they uh, drive up inflation, or if I'm just being too simple-minded. Well, I mean, I think that that's, that's a worthy, you know, uh, explanation as in everything. It's really complex, right? Mm-hmm. Especially as we've gone to a global economy, right? So, you know, as someone said the, in, the, uh, in the European Union, inflation is higher than it is here, right. right? So when they say it's government spending or something in the United States or it's a United States political problem, but it's a problem there. China, you know, was in charge of most of our, you know, man, a lot of our manufacturing. Uh, Taiwan is the biggest center of semiconductors that are used to put in these, you know, that created the supply chain issue. We're still seeing it with cars. Um, yeah, I think that there are people are saying that the, that if you take record profit for corporations and record inflation, that looks like this may not be simply just the price that it costs to produce a head of lettuce, this might be, I'm going to tack on a little surcharge there because I mm-hmm. can right. coming out of it. I think, so I think you're right. And then it also adds on layers and layers. And so it's, it's, it's a really tough issue to kind of pin down. And in Minnesota, it's, 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 it's also the idea that we have low unemployment with the exception of African-American people. But for the most part, we have low unemployment, which means that we're at full employment and people are working and they're spending money, and we have an economy, right? The free market is based on what? What, 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 whatever I charge, if you buy it, that's what it costs. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't, this ain't no situation where what I make, then that's what I'm going to charge you, right? Now, if you say, hey, I ain't going to buy that TV, and then they come down on the cost, right? You know what I mean? But if, if, you know, I was looking at these uh, Ford Broncos, you know, the, the new reverse, yes, revised yeah. version, the four doors, they look all masculine. You know, we're in my 50s now, right? You know, you want to go out, I'm going to go to the trails. I probably ain't going to go nowhere right up and down the block. But I, was, <laughs> but I was looking at them, you know, they look real masculine, real sexy. And those things, it must have been a whole bunch of guys like me and you looking at them because they ain't got them in stock and you got to right. order it a year out and there ain't no, you ain't going in there come out, I'll give you this and I'll give you that. They say, here's what it costs, sir. And if you don't like it, then don't buy it. But clearly the demand for the car allows the manufacturer to charge what they want. They're not charging what it costs to make it. They're charging what they want for it. So 
So there's, there's, it's complex in terms of what, 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 what needs to happen. And so there's this delicate balance of growing the economy, but not too rapidly that causes inflation. There's also political dynamics involved. So um, what, what I can say is I don't believe that the dude that just got, got the job 18 months ago, Joe Biden, caused this. Right. But politically, this is, this is where politics happens. Right. If it's on your watch, it's on your watch, right? Like, yep. like you don't you don't get to blame the guy before you can't blame the guy before you. But first of all, he got enough trouble. But he ain't in office no <laughs> right. more. Yep. They gonna they gonna blame the guy or the person or the woman or the party who's in office. And and to the extent there, that's just why we call it an experiment called American democracy and with its flaws. But at the same time, it still has become as long as. And I'll leave your reading your, your listeners with this. Is it, it, it has still been the most stable democracy in the world, is but but it really hinges upon the successful transition of power, no matter what party or what person. And that's where I really believe that the Trump administration and that the January 6ers, that's the existential threat to the United States was when they stormed the Capitol. Because Every every time before, even if you didn't like it and believe it, George Bush and the hanging chads with Al Gore, when many of us thought that election was stolen from us, but people allowed that to happen. They said, okay, the Supreme Court has, has, has spoken. We're going to go with it. We'll get them the next time. And these folks who tried to storm the Capitol cause the resolution, the revolution, had really, really pushed us to the limit of the peaceful transition of power. And that I think is is what what we should be really deeply thinking about. Well, I want to thank you for that answer. Uh, all your comments they were very thought provoking and very interesting. I know you got to do a TV show tonight, so I'm going to let <laughs> you go. But I'm going to okay. offer you two things. One, the next time I think I'm going to see you, I'm going to bring you a dozen gopher golf balls. Thank As, you, thank you. I love it. <laughs> yeah, and they're, and they're they're not cheap. They're uh, they're uh, pro V axis. So. Oh yeah. I love it, <laughs> well, we should get out there. Sounds like you hit a few. We should get I, out there. I I tried to play the game and it just didn't come to me. I do have a oh, set okay. of I have a set of irons and a putter, so I'd walk along and chip and putt. But that's about it. I, you ain't gonna get me I to will. drive. <laughs> yeah. Well, let us know. We love it. I, I Van and I played. Uh, Okay. A lot this summer. He hasn't beat me yet, by the way. And the day right. he did, he hurt his arm, so he had to be disqualified. But I love to play. I'm not that good either, but I do love to get out there. And lastly, I want to thank you for your military and your political service. And oh, your service you. I know. I and, and your service to the JB Low Tech Podcast for being my political analyst. No, I appreciate it. Call me anytime. Uh, just as we did before, let's hook right. up. I, as you see, I love to talk about it. I think it's important, yeah. and and I um, and I consider it my, my my duty as much as anything. Well, I hope I asked the correct uh, thought provoking questions. No, you did, you did, and there's no wrong question because we're all kind of at different levels of thinking about this, and so hopefully someone that listens to this will be touched to to get involved, or at least you know maybe something that's, that's clicked for them and the aha moment came. You know, that's what I'm hoping for. Right. Well, again, I want to thank you, and uh, I'll be in touch. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Good talking to you, JB. You Talk too. to you, sir. Take care. Okay. Bye.
Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single-touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year, and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please. Drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. One, two, three into the boat. Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the door. Ready to make an entrance, so back on up. Cause you know we're about to rip this Give me the microphone first so I can bust like a bubble. Compton and Long Beach together, now you know you in trouble. Ain't nothing but a G-Bang, baby. Too low depths, you know we're crazy. And we're back here at the JB's Low Tech Podcast to put a bow on this episode. I want to again thank Jeff Hayden. Uh, locally in Minnesota, you can find him on Almanac and... Um, you can also find him at a show called At Issue. I believe that's on Channel 5 locally. Um, it is a kind of a scary time politically in this country. If you are eligible to vote, please vote. My family tells a story of the last thing my father's mother did basically in her life was to get up and and vote and within days she had passed away and my dad did not get to see uh, Barack Obama be sworn in but he left this earth and he told us this he left this earth knowing that an African American man was elected president and he was so very happy and proud that that happened. As usual, I'm going to ask you to make sure you tell a friend about the podcast, uh, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and other outlets. And uh, I hope this discussion stirred you. And uh, again, please vote and please come back again for the latest and next episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. JB. Is my name and f***ing up, mother. This is my game. I am Negro, Black, African American, Black, Black, Black. Django, J. B. Damn, Dolomite. Great card in heaven, you know. J. B. Our great Negro sex machine.